from? I'm from Ottawa, oh, okay. Ontario. Uh, and that's part of the reason uh, that I'm sort of a bit of a mystery, especially my early career in the Toronto scene, because I wasn't part of the Toronto scene. Right. I didn't arrive in Toronto until 1979. So that whole Toronto sound thing that happened in the 60s, I really wasn't around for. Um, and that was even maybe a generation older than me that was mainly involved in that. Yeah, I'm from Ottawa and uh, born and raised. Um, as far as my musical career, I nobody in my family was really musical. We did have a piano in the house. Uh, as far as uncles and aunts or anything, nobody was musical. My mom did play a few things on the piano, and I sort of took to it. I had an older brother who was taking piano lessons. Uh, he didn't take to the piano lessons, and I was banging away on the piano and just driving everybody crazy, so they finally decided we should get this guy lessons so he can play something that won't drive us crazy. When you were banging away, were you, was there something you, you were trying to replicate or were you just banging away? No, I was, it was a funny thing. I, I had this, um, I guess I was figuring out things on the piano. I was just telling somebody about this recently. I actually had a little figure that I played, that I came up with, which was, I still remember it. It was, dun 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 and what I learned that if you played a different left-hand note with that figure, every time you change the note, it would change. It would change what was in your right hand, even though I hadn't hadn't played anything different in my right hand. Hmm. So I came across this sort of uh, a device that a lot of composers use. You know that that the, the right hand stays and the left hand moves. I was probably four or five years old when I discovered that. And then what I would do, I'd play that all high on the piano. And then I'd play it really low, and I'd play it really quietly, and I'd play it really loudly. But that's all I played, was this <laughs> dum 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 To the whole house, I had five, uh, well, there's four brothers and sisters and my parents. They were, it, they were just driven to distraction, because I'd do this for hours, playing these little things up and down the piano. So they finally got me lessons, so I'd learn something else. Right. And stop playing the stupid da 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 um, but that obviously connected with you. It did, uh, because it was an exploration. I guess I sort of intuitively knew that you could, uh, you could have different emotions like that. And I was just sort of copying what I, maybe I'd heard on TV and that, you know, there'd be, you could do this slowly. You could go da, da, di, da, da. It's, it's probably the only uh, early indication that I was sort of precocious in that way. Um, my dad was really into sports, and so we were all into sports. So I, I was more precocious as a baseball player and a, right. and a hockey player, and that was where his interests were. So I did a lot of sports when I was, you know, up till 10 years old. But I did start taking classical piano lessons. I took them for a couple of years. I think I got about grade four. And uh, uh, I think I came with dirty hands one time with dirt under my fingernails from playing baseball. And my uh, piano teacher got really annoyed, and I said to my parents, that's it, I'm not going to take any of my piano. And uh, uh, also, a friend of mine came over and started playing stuff he had learned by ear on my piano. And, and I this had, would have been like pop music? or Yeah, pop music uh, of the day. And this would be after the Beatles. I was 10 years old when the Beatles played the Ed Sullivan Show. So we were all changed by that. Mm -hmm. And right around that time, a friend came over and started playing, like, British Invasion stuff, but by ear. And nobody even sort of told me you could do that, or that I, that concept that 
what do you mean? I could just listen to this and I could just play it? So that really uh, got me going. And I started learning all this stuff by ear, you know. Okay, so how does that happen? Like, how do you learn by ear? Because you just, um, some, some people just have a great natural ear. That right. They can just hear something and be able to play it. I wasn't like that. I don't have perfect pitch. And, uh, but I did get the concept that if you just heard it, you know, and I'd get, I'd get a 45 or something, and then you had to sit there with the needle and move it back, hear it again, try it on the piano, you'd find what key they're in, you find the notes. So I guess I at least had enough of an ear to find the notes that were being played. But then you get stuck, and then you started having a group of friends that were sort of doing this, and you'd say, yeah, but do you know, like, give me some loving, do you know, what's he doing there? What's... And you'd hear one of your friends play it, you go, what was that, what was that, what did you do? So it got passed around like that. There was no books on this right. at that time. There was no books on jazz. There was no books on blues. There was no books on anything. Everything had to be either you learned it from a record or somebody showed it to you. Right. You know, and it was a very slow process. And I was thinking the other day, when somebody now, a young player, if they heard something on a radio or somebody played them something that they liked, they could have it on their phone within 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. They could dump it into the computer, have it a computer so they could just go to that spot that they want to hear. They could time expand it so that it's half speed but the same pitch, so the slow down a thing. All within like a minute, they could right. be doing this. In our instance, if we heard something on the radio that we liked, we'd have to go downtown to find the record store that might have it, right. order it, it could be a month getting there. We'd have to wait, but the anticipation for this was incredible. So we'd have to wait, we'd get this record, we'd bring it home, then we'd have to sit there with a stylist lifting it up and going back and ruining the thing as we did this and scratching it and, and going over and over it. I mean, it was painful. So anytime there's somebody around that could give you a little insight into playing a figure a certain way, and that's we go to a lot of live performances and then bug the people afterwards. How'd you do that? What'd you do there? What'd you do? You know, and you try to stand up above them and see what they're doing. There was so much more of that. But now that's all taken uh, young players. Now they can go to YouTube and have that. Right. Have, even have the people who played it. But, but do you think they it. would be better because of it? Or do you think they would be worse because they don't have the, the discipline or the work that goes into it? I don't know. You know, I, I do know that there are a lot of advantages to having the system the way it is now and that there are a lot of young players who have sort of skipped ahead and mm -hmm. are quite advanced because they've been able to have all this information at their fingertips. How they apply it, oh, I guess, I guess what's really missing is that when, when I did start to actually play, we played six nights a week right. and seven nights a week. And so you got to apply that knowledge, that the little knowledge you had, but you got to, to really deepen it and to have it in a performance situation. And so those things that you had learned became very solid. I think that's what's missing young players now. They have a heck of a lot of knowledge and a lot of technique. Not a lot of it is solid because they haven't had the time to perform in front of people. And it doesn't matter how much you practice on your own. It's performing in front of people is what really makes things solid. It certainly concentrates your attention. 
Right. Because you're going to have to play it in front of somebody. <laughs> and there's nothing. So I, tell me, from, mm-hmm. the, from the person who was just trying to figure things out yeah. on the piano to the person who became a musician, or yeah. that you were doing the six nights a week, um, how did that happen? How, when did you decide that maybe this was a path worth pursuing? Well, it, it kind of came gradually. I did have an older brother that became a professional musician. He was a drummer. So I've always been in a house with drums. So mm-hmm. I sort of play the drums as well. Uh, I say sort of. I don't play them professionally, really, but I do play. I have a set of drums at home. Um, it's, so I was always attracted to that as well. But uh, he got in a band, and I started seeing... I would go see them play and stuff. I was excited about that. And uh, the more the sort of Beatles put, the, that whole music of the 60s came along, I got more and more interested in it. And finally, I guess the next step was to find a band that I could play in. And I'd learned enough material. And um, what ha- well, it was a strange thing what happened. I, I did finally get, for my birthday, which was in September, I got my dad to buy me a Vox Continental organ. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted for my birthday. So he bought it. What year? So what age were you? This would be in about 66. So maybe I was 13 or 14. And the Vox because of who, what band? or it? Yeah, it would. It, the animals were using it and uh, the doors had used it. And and it was. Uh, it seemed it was portable. It wasn't like getting it. A Hammond at the time sounded to me like a piece of furniture for a kid. You know, it was just too big, and, right. and I couldn't move it around. Like I didn't have a car or a truck or anything. So the Voss Continental, you could sort of, it was portable, you know. And it was sort of being used a lot. Now, the funny thing was that the Voss Continental didn't make any sound on its own. It was basically like a guitar. It had to have an amplifier. Well, my dad bought this thing, of course, not being a musician. Didn't know you had to have an amplifier. So there it was for my birthday. I couldn't make a sound with it. We called the store and they said, well, no, you need an amplifier. Well, how much is that? I forget what it was, $250, $500. My dad said, well, I can't, I can't get that now. Yeah. Maybe Christmas. So I spent from September to Christmas going down. It was set up in my room in the basement and I'd go down there. I'd look at it. I'd look along the side of it. I can still remember the smell of it because it had sort of cigarette smoke and... Uh, and stale beer because somebody had played it in a bar, you know. I could smell that on it. So then again, the anticipation. I had four months of just looking at this thing before I finally got an amplifier for Christmas. And when I did get the amplifier, I was in high school at that point, grade nine, and a a friend of mine uh, who I'd known earlier heard that I had an instrument. I had the Vox Continental. He said, well, we've got a band. Do you want to bring it out? And so I was hired or asked to come out, not based on my playing. He'd never heard me play. <laughs> well, it sounds like you hadn't heard yourself play either on that Well, <laughs> at that point, I hadn't heard myself play. But he got me out based on the fact that I had an organ. And that wasn't unusual. If no. you had a set of drums, there'd be somebody out there looking for a drummer. And they didn't care really how well you played. You just had to, as long as you had the drums, you know. And uh, so that was it. And I remember going to my first rehearsal with this uh, band. And I think at the time that band was called Leicester Square. Um, and it was the very first rehearsal we played My Girl by uh, Temptations. Very first song I think I learned. So I'd love to have heard that. <laughs> you had these 
you know, teenage white kids in Ottawa, Ontario, playing soul music, and that's all they played. They only played soul music. Um, and they had a, a saxophone player and then a four or five, uh, this four-piece band and a singer. And here we were out there playing, you know, Try a Little Tenderness and all these, all these stack songs, uh, which I even, until then, I had did, I'd heard them, but I hadn't learned them myself. But uh, So I, I sort of got a schooling by these guys. And, and that was within a couple of months, we played our first professional gig. We actually did a, a dance and I got paid. And did you think, this is what I want to do? No, no, that didn't. It was just, at that point, it was more like a, a teenage thing. Again, because my parents weren't in the business at all, that seemed like far away. That seemed like New York City or... Mm-hmm. This was just something to do, you know. I liked it, and I really got a buzz off of that first uh, performance. But uh, no, I had no idea. So I stayed with those guys, and that that band just kept on morphing into different people. And uh, we played. We kept on playing more and more. And this, um, eventually, it was about 1969 that... uh, it became a band with different personnel, a band called Sam Sarah, which is a pretty well-known band in Ottawa, rock band, uh, but progressive rock. We were doing, by that point, now we were sort of spreading out and doing all sorts of things, everything from King Crimson to Chicago to uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And at that point, after we started doing all this uh, very progressive stuff, and we were all learning it by rote, we just, in other words, we, nobody read any music. We didn't even write music down for each other. We had our own way of talking to each other about how to do. Everybody went off and learned by ear their own parts and came back together. And uh, I then started, I had an interest in, and I've been now, I think I joined the union at 16, so I've been a professional for about three years now, or, or yeah, so I'd be... Uh, well, I was six, so I was sixteen in nineteen sixty nine. Yeah. Can I ask you? Yeah. Are you just playing in Ottawa at this point? Or are you touring? Yes. Or? No, just in Ottawa because we were all still going to school. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and we're playing at the time the scene in Ottawa, which was a, quite a healthy scene, because it was all in Ottawa and all up and down the Ottawa Valley. So the funny thing about Ottawa is that the bands there were some great bands and and artists in Ottawa, they never went anywhere else because there's so much work in Ottawa and right up to Pembroke, up the Ottawa Valley, you didn't have to go to Toronto. You didn't have to play anywhere else. And because I became sort of insular, it wasn't really a good thing in the end because most Ottawa bands, even the Staccatos or the Townsmen and all these people, it wasn't until maybe a a five-man electrical band that they started playing elsewhere and became known. But there were some great uh, bands in Ottawa, the Mythical Metal, uh, there was, uh, yeah, a lot. And we were, the Sam Sarah band was one of that group, although again, sort of younger, a little younger than most, you know, although the people, by the time that Sam Sarah band came around, I was still with that bass player who had asked me to join the other band, but we were the youngest. We were 16, and the other guys in the band were more like 21. So they were, they were uh, more seasoned and everything and more professional and... We couldn't even really play in bars. We weren't supposed to be playing in bars. But as long as you were on stage, we were all union members, and as long as you were on stage, you were sort of protected. Right. But we technically couldn't step off stage into the bars. 
we did because a lot of times there's nobody around to stop it, but we weren't. We were supposed to leave by a door and go to a dressing room and not be part of the bar scene. But there was that, but there's also church halls. Like most church halls ran dances on Friday and Saturday, and we played all those. And you played uh, summer dance halls. There's a place called Pineland outside of Ottawa, sort of like a Kitabala kind of place. Mm -hmm. Had big bands like Mandela and all these Toronto bands would come there. So we got to see a lot. And we were playing all through my high school days. I'd be playing Friday, Saturday at least, if not Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then we'd go on Sunday afternoons to this great bar just on the other side of the bridge in Hull called the, called the Ottawa House. And they'd have a matinee. So we'd all go over there and... They had sort of a lax policy. If you're underage, the drink age was 21 at the time, they'd give you, they'd allow you, if you came in and ordered one quart of beer, that you sort of bought your seat at the table. If you went to order something else, they'd sort of, they'd ask you for your ID. So they'd let you do that. So we were, probably we only had money for one quart, but we got then to see all these people that came up from Toronto. And the Ottawa House was sort of a six night and a matinee gig. And they'd let us in for this matinee to see these bands. So we saw some great people. Anybody change your life? Any bands that you witnessed? And well, yeah. The, the, <clears throat> the first real band that I saw, I should say real band, maybe fully professional band, because I'd see my brother's band and others. But the one that really hit me was uh, the Auto Exhibition had a, a tent. It was called the Where It's At Pavilion. And at the back of the pavilion... Uh, they had this tent, a performance space, and you could put a couple of thousand people in it. And a friend of mine, we went there, and the first band we saw was the Mandela with George Oliver. And that was one powerful experience. Like that really shook us. We couldn't believe what was going on. They seemed so much older than us, too. They seemed, I thought they were in their 30s. Turns out they're all like around 21, 22. But we thought they were older guys. But it and the where it's at pavilion, the neat thing was that they had something like five shows a day they had to do. They only did 45-minute sets, but they had five of them a day. And we came back for all five like, and saw the same show. They just did the same show over. But we saw that show five times. And uh, that was a big thing. That, that was the one that really turned me around. Although I think what turned me around musically and got me to, on the path to go to university for music was... Uh, Sergeant Peppers, when I heard that, and we, our family was living in North Africa at the time. My dad was working with Bad Nations. And I got, somebody from England was coming from England, and they brought me the Sergeant Pepper record. And there I was in Tripoli, Libya, in the middle of the afternoon, I, I made sure everybody was out of the house. And I lay on this terrazzo floor, cold in the, in the sort of desert heat, and put on Sergeant Pepper. And I just, it changed my life. Like, it was just so amazing. Had you heard any of it beforehand? Only over shortwave radio, scratchy coming in and out. So to actually hear it in high fidelity, it just, it transported me. It was one of the first records that when I put on, it just took me to another place. And I was gone for both sides of that. And I think I listened to that. Uh, that week, I must have listened to it 60 times. And, and for the rest of the summer, that's what I was listening to. But... Um, so I have to ask, when you were living in Africa, how did that affect or inform the way your music, or what did it do to your musical 
it frankly it sort of retarded it because because we didn't have a piano there and i finally got some little chord organ these are just small little maybe 12 note keyboards right. i i had to have something there we were only there for maybe a year and a half but for that year and a half so it, it that actually slowed down my musical right. development okay. but i listened to so much music too and there wasn't much live music being played by anybody in any sort of way um Certainly, I was exposed to some Arabic music and stuff and sort of opened my ears that way. Uh, it was more important that it exposed me to uh, uh, to sort of prejudice in, in, a, in a funny way that, that I, was, I was the victim of, of prejudice because now here I was the minority mm-hmm. in this situation. And uh, uh, there was the, we were there during the Six-Day War in 1967, so... There was a lot of animosity against, especially I was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid, walking around Tripoli. This was not a very good place to be at that point. There right. was a lot of animosity towards Americans and Israelis, who they kept on saying were blonde-haired and blue-eyed, which I thought was funny. I didn't know any difference at the time, uh, you know, because uh, Israelis are Semitic. They're not typically blonde-haired and blue-eyed, but. Uh, so that always stuck stuck with me for the rest of my life that that I had no time for anybody being prejudiced against anybody, mm-hmm. you know, because I think once you've been on the other side of that, you uh, you just have no tolerance for that, you know, on on any level. Because of course, as a thirteen year old kid, I had nothing to do with world right. politics or world situations, you know. And I, I got into a couple of close calls. I was marched off to a police station one time just because I was caught on the road and uh, luckily a friend of the family's a, a son of the friend of the family's had driven by saw me being marched on gunpoint to a police station that they said I might never have come out of you know wow. and uh, he came in and and boasted that he was uh, the son of a minister or something which wasn't true but the police finally gave me up because they thought they were getting into more trouble having me than not uh, but uh, so there's all sorts of situations that that changed my life in a lot of ways. But uh, then I came back to Canada. That's when I really started playing. When I came back to Canada and uh, and saw the Mandela, and that's when I first heard a, a Hammond B3, especially live. And did that change your life? Yes, it did. It it really. I'd always been a piano player, although, see, if you had if you were in a band in those days, you played. You, there wasn't electric pianos. Well, there really wasn't. I guess there was, but there wasn't electric pianos in, in Ottawa at the time. Couldn't go to the store and buy one. And if you were in a band, you pretty much played organ. It was the only way to be heard. Uh, so even if you're a piano player, which I was, I wasn't an organist, you were put on an organ. And, uh, and everywhere you went at that point, the bands had organs. And they were just fabulous sounding. You know, they had them all cranked up. Sometimes they had them special that you'd put a another like a bass amp and and use that as preamp to the leslie amp because organ amps are only 30 watt they're not they're not very the leslie's aren't very loud really but if you put a 100 watt bass amp that had that drive it it would get to sound pretty loud and pretty pretty wild but for somebody who doesn't <clears throat> play the piano yeah who doesn't understand keyboards yeah i should say understand but i certainly appreciate it Tell me about how different an approach it is for you to play piano versus playing a Hammond organ. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two things. And, and I always say I can tell a, a 
pianist playing organ from across a football field because the whole thing of piano, real piano playing, its real name is pianoforte, which means soft and loud. Mm -hmm. uh, piano was actually short for pianoforte. And that meant it was an instrument where you could play soft and loud. They were set up. Harpsichords are sort of one, one volume level. Right. It's plucking a string. This was designed so you could play soft passages and loud passages. Well, that, so that's what you control with your hand. And that's where all your accents come from. And the swing of a piano, that's why it's been was so popular, because you could do so many things with it. Um, the organ, however, doesn't have any of that sort of touch sensitivity. Because of that, the organ keys are very light, too. And they just sort of, they're just an on-off switch. So nothing you do with striking or playing softer will make any difference on an organ. So organists play their hands are quite close to the keys. They'll be just, it doesn't matter how hard they hit them. They have a, a foot pedal, it's called expression pedal, and that pedal gives you the difference in volume. Your hands don't do it. So a true organist raised on an organ will just play very close to the keys, plus they don't have a sustain pedal that a piano has. Now a sustain pedal holds the notes. Right. It sustains the notes. It lifts dampers off the strings. That, that, uh, allows you to play a chord here and then it will ring and you could go up here and play another chord. Organ doesn't have that. So organ technique, they, if they want to move to another chord, they have to hold and switch fingers and, and sort of try to do it without having, because otherwise once their hands come off, there's no sound. Right. So it's an entirely different technique of playing. Now saying that, pianists like me, once you've been trained, even from an early age playing the piano, it's very hard for you to switch your mind around to that. So what you'll see, and you'll see it, anybody will see it in my playing, is that I'm still striking the organ when I play because my brain won't let me do otherwise. And as I get louder, I hit the organ harder. It's backwards. My ear is telling me, if this is loud, you must be hitting But hard. even after all these years? Even after all these years. I have to really, I try to. I, I, I always say I'm one of the better pianists on organ because I try not to do that, and I, I've, I'm conscious of it. And I try to do more organ technique when I can. Uh, but when I see films of myself, I still see, oh, no, your, your piano is still playing an organ. Now, I do kick pedals, and most piano players, uh, and, and for your listeners, I mean, organ, all organ has bass pedals. And this is like an octave, or sometimes two octaves, uh, just like a, a keyboard but it's laid out as pedals, so you play them with your feet. So you can play bass lines, bass notes with your feet. Now, most pianists, when they play organ, don't bother with the pedals. They just want to put their hands on and they play. So amongst organists, if you don't play pedals, you're not really considered an organist. You have to play pedals. So it, my whole life, when I played organ, I played with bass players. Right. So I didn't have to play pedals. And it wasn't until I got years later, this being around 2000, now so we're talking 30 years later, uh, I bought an organ off of Dennis Keldy, a good friend of mine, a wonderful organist, yes, and a real organist. Um, he, uh, and he had pedals on this organ that I bought from him. And, he, and I was going to say, oh, you could keep them because I'm not going to use them. I said, oh, well, I'll put them on and I should really make an effort and... 
And it just so happened when I, I thought it would be a little pet project, every morning I'd get up and spend 10 minutes on the pedals, I really started to enjoy it because it involves all your limbs and it divides your mind in four ways instead of two ways. And, and it seemed from, I think it's from my athletic past when I was more of an athlete, that this sort of coordination thing was something that I, I had a, a, uh, a talent for, and I took to it right away. And it's sort of funny now that I'm considered this organist and this sort of pedal guy. That started pretty late in my life that I actually started that. Um, and how long did it take for you to feel really comfortable doing that? Well, it took me a good year to... Um, and but I was completely obsessed by it. I was playing, I was practicing maybe six hours a day, uh, going over it. But what I never caught up to, the the real organist, the jazz organist, and the club organist, uh, a guy like Kingsley Etienne here in, in Toronto, who've played their whole life playing pedals, or Doug Riley. Um, it didn't matter that I was, you know, woodshedding for six hours a day. They had played gigs for six days a week right. and playing three hours a night. You can't catch up to that. Right. You can't get that ease of that it becomes part of your whole system unless you've actually done that. And so, but also because of that, I, I, I sort of taught myself how to do it. I had some, again, I was asking, how do you do that? How do you do to Doug and other people? And uh, I had a theater organist friend of mine who would give me techniques from theater organ playing. So I was really asking for help from people. I got great advice, but I did come up with a whole sort of way of doing it myself that's quite unique because I was sort of just trying to synthesize all these different things. So I don't really play pedals like a jazz organist. I don't play pedals like a theater organist. I, I, it's, it's my own, it's, it's partly my own thing. So, which is nice in the end because it comes out sounding like me. Okay, so are you where you want to be playing the organ? Is that a silly question? Like, are you ever where you want to be playing the instrument that you play? No, no, I don't think. Uh, when I worked with Oscar Peterson, I, at one point he had done these uh, series of records called Exclusively for My Friends where he played solo piano. He was in this big mansion in Germany and they'd set up a Busendorf for him to play it was biked at any hour of the day he could go in and play. And so he, he put out these spectacular solo piano records. And I was working on the, the Oscar Peterson multimedia CD-ROM with him. And so I was asking, and I was listening to this stuff, and it was just so exquisitely played, and it's, it, it's genius stuff. And it was, it was obvious to me that it was as good as it ever could be done in that style. Mm -hmm. I wanted to find out what he said about it. I said, well, Oscar, you know, and at the time... He was probably in his mid-50s when he did this record. And he was now in his, it was 20 years later, he was in his 70s. He said, Oscar, you, you must know that, you must have that sense of satisfaction that that's as good as it can be done. That that recording, don't you feel satisfied? Right. That recording is as good as it can be done? He said, he wasn't being uh, facetious or anything. He said, you know, I was starting to get the hang of it. He said, I was just starting to get the hang of it. And I thought, well, here, if this genius 
could only admit to the fact that he was starting to get the hang of it. <laughs> it just shows it never ends. Yeah. That he was still trying to be better. He still thought he was now playing better than he did then. Uh, and I'm the same way. I mean, the, you know, the best you can do, and I hope to do this when I'm producing people, is just be as good as you could be at this point. You know, don't try to overstep where you are right. because that's never going to work. Just be who you are right now. And yes, in six months you'll be better, but it'll be true then. If we wait six months to do your record, the next six months you're going to be better yet. That never ends. Hopefully mm -hmm. it never ends. So just do your work, do your preparation, and now just express yourself. Like, don't worry about this. So many people get caught up in, you know, I'm not as good as I should be, and they, and they, they beat themselves up over it. You'll, you'll have a much happier life if you just realize you are what you are and you just try to do it honestly and, and play, as, play the stuff that turns your crank, you know, whatever it is. And I, that's what I try to do. I mean, uh, and maybe I've been a little cursed with that because I happen to, a lot of things turn my crank. You know, I, right. like, I, I didn't get to the part where I actually went to university for classical music because I wanted to learn. There's all the stuff I was hearing that I had no idea how they put it together. And I came into university without any background really in classical music. I mean, except for the two years. Except for two years as a kid playing right. early, very simple Bach pieces. So, and I was showing up with children of music professors, you know, who had a whole life of this. We were playing, uh, uh, you know, Beethoven string quartets when they were six years old. And I showed up at 19 <laughs> with these people. So I was very behind everybody, you know. I wasn't the only one because there's a couple other rock people that showed up at the same time. They sort of tried to fight the whole thing. I just said, no, I'm not fighting it. I just want to soak up what these people have to offer. So I spent four years sort of learning a lot. Like I really learned a lot. Can I ask, <clears throat> yeah. at this point, are you thinking I'm going to be a musician or not? By this point, when I signed up for university, yeah. And you're thinking what? That you will be in a band or you'll be teaching or? I, not teaching. I knew I wasn't going to be a teacher. Um, at that point, I was half thinking I might be a classical performer, like a pianist or a jazz pianist. I was already a big fan of both Glenn Gould and, and Oscar Peterson. Um, but it didn't take me long. It was, I think even my first, I went to Western in London, Ontario. My first week at university, I heard some spectacular performance pianists who were in like fourth year or something, not that much older, a couple of years older, and I just heard them and just went, I can't catch up to that. Like I'll right. never be that. They were so gifted and, and had been at it so long that I sort of looked around and said, well, maybe there's something else I should be doing here. And I'd always been writing. I'd been writing for the rock bands I was in. I was arranging all the stuff for the rock bands. So I decided, right then and there that I'd be more of a writer and arranger and and uh, and that's so I, I went for theory and composition and that was my major and so um, uh, and and for most of my life I've I've either produced or arranged or written songs for people more than performed and a lot of people would say well why didn't you just do that why have you come back especially maybe in the last 20 years come back to performing and it's because I've loved it. I've always loved it. But 
I love both of them. Mm-hmm. So it just wasn't enough. I've always had this itch to perform. I like, I really love performing. But it's such a different discipline, is it not? The it two. is, yeah. And I wish, I, I envy the people who are single-minded and single, have this single goal, um, that they wanted to be a blues guitar player. And that's all they've ever wanted to be, and that's what they've done. And they never had to learn or went off and learned about compressors and recording gear. They knew they could just go in the studio and have somebody who was into that. I, un- unfortunately, for whatever reason, I've always had this really wide interest and genuinely have interest in recording, genuinely have interest in arranging. I, I'm as excited about a Stravinsky score, ballet score, and will go and see I just saw Rite of Spring not too long ago, a couple of years ago. Uh, I was excited about that as I would be to see Dr. John play the piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and a lot of people wouldn't. Like they just have much more narrow right. focus. Uh, so in a way, I, I, I am a little envious of that because I think my whole career might be further ahead in, in both sides as a writer or as a, as a performer or as a producer, if I had just decided on one of them. Uh, but, you know, I think I'm just one of those people that it's just take, it, it, it's, it's obviously taken me longer uh, to get to this point, but now I feel I'm sort of comfortable with all those things. But it was just a much too, the apprenticeship, I wouldn't recommend it, the apprenticeship is much too long. <laughs> um, but you did like TV work and film work, right? Yeah. And you did composition. Yeah. So was there a moment where you had given up playing live altogether? And then... No, no, I was always playing. I always sort of had to make a living in between the, the TV work and stuff. There was times when I, I didn't play as much or I was playing in the studio. Right. Because usually at, uh, I think I was, I guess in my 40s, that I, I got a job as a, staff producer at Cherry Beach Sound in Toronto. And that means that you just record whoever comes in the door. Now, I could go and search out people to record, which I did. Uh, Leahy is an example of the performers that I found. Uh, Somebody asked me to go see these these, uh, people perform in a bar. I went and I was just knocked out by their, their abilities and I invited them to come down and to record and said, we've got to record you and and that became very successful. Right after that, I was known as the, as the Celtic guy. Suddenly, I got all these Celtic people right. coming to ask me to record them. And I had never listened to much Celtic music. I wasn't the Celtic guy. But I do believe I produced that record really well because right. I, I, they were as good as they could. They were great. But I got that down on record, mm-hmm. how good they were. And that. that's not an easy thing, right? Like, no. I mean, uh, I've gone to studios enough to know that it's not just a matter of putting the microphone in front of somebody and it comes out. Because when it doesn't work, it's a horrible experience. Yeah. Well, there's there's a good example of that with Leahy. Like I say, they're gifted people, uh, you know, Celtic fiddlers, a family Mm -hmm. of at least 10 kids that I I know of. At the time, there was five of us, five of the kids working. They all played fiddle. They all step danced. They all, they were just really gifted. A perfect pitch and uh, perfect rhythm. The the one piano player, she had uh, Siobhan, she had just perfect uh, time. Um, wonderful people. I really liked working with them. But of course, they they had never had very good experiences in the studio. 
And one of the things was, for example, when we set up, we had the, the uh, fiddle player, Donnell, in, in, a, in a booth away from the piano, because techni right. technically that's what you would do, especially at that time. And it wasn't going well. You know, he just couldn't get into it. He didn't like having the headphones on. He couldn't tune properly to the piano. He was obviously uncomfortable. And I said to the engineer, I said, well, you know, we've got to do something about this. I said, what do you want? And he said, well, normally I'm just standing beside a piano. And I said, well, yes, we could do that, but then you realize that if you make a mistake, you're, because sometimes they don't understand this, that your fiddle is going to into her piano mics. Mm -hmm. So we can't separate it. Because you can't just say, oh, that, then you could do that over again to the piano track. Right. No, your old fiddle track is in the piano mics. So he said, okay, I, I'm, I'm okay with that because I'd rather be beside her. And you know, they didn't make many mistakes if they did, or they just did it again together. And the whole band would do another take. And that's the kind of thing that a producer could bring to the session. That session could have ground to a halt right? because they just weren't comfortable. And, and they would have they finished it, and then they would have gone home and listened to it and said, no, we're not going to do that. You know, it just sounds awful. I don't like the way we play. So you really have to adjust to everybody's comfort zone. I've had everything from singers singing in a lounge chair, like saying, oh, no, I sound better, you know, when I'm sitting lying down in a lounge chair. And I say, well, bring it in, whatever you, whatever you got to do. Uh, another example with, for instance, Leahy is that they, I heard them step dancing, saw them perform step dance. I said, we have to have this on the record. And I remember them saying, well, but Lance, it's not visual. Like, it's, nobody's going to see us dance. What do you mean? I said, well, but it's the rhythm of your step dancing. It has a rhythm. So in this one piece, let's, let's get them to step dancing. Well, have a breakdown. And it'll just be drums and step dancing. Well, they didn't really want to do it. They said they couldn't see it. They couldn't hear it because they were traditional. And, and they couldn't see that, it, that just sound-wise, like I could. We tried it with their wooden... They would have this wooden uh, little stage they'd bring in. Didn't record well. The outside of the studio in the office was some tile. And when she went on that tile with her shoes, it just cracked. It was great sounding. So here I dragged all the microphones out. We recorded out there. And they, this was Lance's folly. They thought this was the stupidest thing. And I remember them laughing at me and going, well, if you have to do this, let's, I know it's wasting our time, but sure. I said, no, and I was adamant this would work. And then I even had her double track. I had her dance on one track, and then she danced the variation. And they, she said, well, I can't do exactly what I do. I said, that's the point. Don't do exactly what you do. Just, just dance again. So she did. Again, they thought it was a waste of time. Well, when the record came out, and they did a video of the record, the hallmark of the video is when they cut to them doing this dance. Now, they showed in the video them all doing it, all lining up and doing it, and of course, she had just, the one uh, person had just done it twice. But it was the thing that made that record and made it, and it was called Call the Dance, the actual name of the record. Um, so there's an example of having people who had their own vision of what their music did, but as an outsider, especially outside the whole Celtic tradition, I could bring something to it saying that, no, but you guys don't even realize how special this mm -hmm. step dancing thing is. And I hope I bring that to everything I do, you know, that I could try to see, same with the blues record, that you bring something to it 
that the artists are too close to the material and stuff to not even recognize themselves. Right. You know, when they're doing something, just to say, hey, you know what you started off there in that, that verse, that intro? You left it too quick. Like, it's a great intro. Just stick with that. Stick with building or, you know, even just that, let alone recording all the instruments well. Right. You know, but making the people comfortable, making them that they're in their best creative situation, you record them well. I don't believe in sort of turning it into a record that sounds like me. I believe in recording it into the best record they can make, turning it into that and trying to capture whatever energy they have. And the other big trick with recording is to capture a performance. People remember performances. Mm -hmm. People don't remember people walking through a tune. So if you can't inspire them to really turn it on and to somehow get their mind into the same place they are when they're playing live in front of 2,000 people or 200 people, if you can't get them to switch that on, then you won't have a record. You'll have, you know, uh, you'll have a recording. Right. But you won't have a record that will mean something to somebody. And I can tell on recordings when somebody's reading their lyrics compared to when they have it memorized. Mm -hmm. It doesn't project as well through the, through the speaker. Some people do it to remind themselves, you know, they'll look over what's coming up and then when they turn away, they're back to, that's right. a different thing. But actually reading, reading is different than singing, than singing those words that you know what it's saying. These are very small things, but they're so important. Yeah. And I, I wonder, <clears throat> you kind of alluded to this before, but because mm -hmm. of the fact that you, you do so many things. So you play piano, yeah. you play organ, yeah. you write, yeah. um, you arrange, yeah. you produce, you play live, mm -hmm. you're a musical director of various shows. Mm -hmm. what's, what's your favorite thing to do? Uh, people ask that all the time. <laughs> and I can't really give the answer. At any one moment, you know, when I'm doing one of those things, while I'm doing it, that's my favorite thing. So I guess that's the answer. And also, there's no way you would give up doing one more than the other. No, I, like I say, I wish I could. It, life would be a lot simpler. But last year I wrote, I was commissioned to write an orchestral arrangement for the Okanagan Symphony mm -hmm. for Oscar Peterson's Canadiana Suite. Uh, it was separate. It didn't really have anything to do with the fact that I'd worked with Oscar and knew him. It was completely separate. Uh, but I ended up doing that. Three months of work, writing eight hours a day to write 110 pages of orchestral music. Uh, that's really no fun. But only somebody who does a lot of arranging, like Lou Pamonte, <laughs> we laugh about it. It's very obsessive compulsive, you know, to do something like that, to actually set out mm -hmm. to write every note that they're going to play with every dynamic marking, every phrase marking, you know, you, there's really something wrong with people who want to do that. <laughs> and, but this is what you, this is what you went to school for. Yes. Yeah. And so you're hearing all that, like you're hearing every instrument yeah. and what, like in your mind, you can picture everything. Yeah. You try, you conjure it up, right. you know, and then, then you, hopefully you can get that thing you've imagined onto the page. And, and so it's kind of neat. Um, so after all that hard work to actually be in Kelowna and have symphony orchestra play the stuff that was only in your head, at that moment, 
that's what I want to be doing. Like, right. As soon as I hear that, I go, oh, I should do this more. And this is, I love this. <laughs> Did you love it the three months when you were... No, no, nobody loves that kind of work, you know. I mean, it, it's hard. It, yes, you like it because when you get a good idea and it's working, uh, you know, now we have computer programs that have simulated orchestras, so I could actually have a... I was working with a score, but it would play the, the, the parts. Mm -hmm. And pretty convincingly... Uh, so I'd have a pretty good idea of how it was. And when, when you really come up with an idea, I'll do this and, and, how, and I'll build it. How will it work? It's an exciting thing as, it, as it's working. So sometimes I find it it's so exciting that I have to stop. Wow. <laughs> I, get, I get too wound up about it. There's no reason why... It's a bit of a, I, it happens to me with songs, and I know so many songs, and I believe this, songwriters who say, when you're in that inspired mode, never give up, never stop, because you'll never be back there in that song the same way. I have to agree with them, except sometimes it's too intense and I have to just leave it. I, I, that must be a great feeling, though. It is, but it's, it's like, a, it's, a hard, it's, it's a hard thing to say. And I think it's... Um, it's almost like a psychological uh, thing that I'm reaching, that you're getting so close to, to what you're reaching for that you can't, I, I back away from reaching it or something. You know, there's, there's a whole, that's a whole other discussion. Was there a point where music wasn't in your life? Like, did you always make a living doing something in music? No, I was, when I first came to Toronto, after I was in London, Ontario for about six years, going to university and I stayed a couple of years and I was on the road at that time I played with uh, Gary and Dave who were a uh, uh, pop recording act almost like an Engelbert Humperdinck kind of thing but we played all across Canada and I was on tour with them and down to the Caribbean and that was my first sort of big touring gig and I toured with a big keyboard setup Hammond organ clavinet mini Moog Selena string machine Fender Rhodes you know, about six keyboards around me and stuff. So with a, with a keyboard road? Or did you have to set up yourself? Uh, did you have a road crew that took care? I think care? we had a road crew. We had we at least had some. We didn't have a full road crew, but I did have to set it to move it all by myself. Yeah. Um, it was, I certainly had to program on the fly and all that kind of stuff. So I'd done a lot of that. I played a lot in London, Ontario. London, Ontario, the people knew me. I did more jazz there. In Ottawa, I was known as a rock player. In London, Ontario, I was known as, as a classical composer and, and, a, and a jazz player, mm -hmm. even experimental jazz. I was in a couple of uh, freeform jazz things. With, uh, one was with Greg Colonel, the, the uh, painter. And uh, I also, the, by the time I got to Toronto, I was playing, uh, I was writing all this uh, fusion jazz stuff. So I was playing like Weather Report kind of stuff. Right. And I had a whole group that would play uh, George's Spaghetti House and with a guy named Ralph Bone, who's a fantastic saxophone player who now teaches at Rutgers in the States. Mm. And uh, he was quite a brilliant young saxophone player. And that was all written by me, it was all original. So I got to be known sort of as this Fender Rhodes playing jazz guy. Um, and nobody in that scene knew that I had any classical background and they certainly probably didn't know I had a rock background as well I still wasn't really playing blues although through all that 
I'd always played blues because right. that was sort of the basic of, basis of most of that music. Um, and then I got a little disillusioned with the jazz scene in Toronto. I certainly, what we were doing, and we just thought we were doing, we were just playing what we wanted to play. It wasn't accepted because it wasn't, Toronto in the late 70s it was a real bebop town. If you weren't playing bebop jazz or hard bop jazz, it wasn't considered jazz. And as a matter of fact, a very famous uh, jazz radio personality once told me that not only did he think what we were doing wasn't jazz, which was, that was a valid opinion, he didn't even think it was music. <laughs> and I thought, That's that nice. was a strange comment, considering that, you know, I'd just gone through years of Stockhausen and, and Boulez, that he thought this sort of fusion, like, uh, very tonal stuff that we were doing wasn't even music. I, I just thought it was such a... So the jazz police sort of soured me on the whole jazz scene. We just, you know, if, if you weren't doing what they wanted, you sort of weren't accepted. So I sort of got out of that, and, to, and I had... Uh, my wife and I started having more kids. We ended up with three kids. So I really had to work, you know. But, oh, your original question was, did I do anything but music? When yeah, I first moved to Toronto, I was a waiter. Uh, probably for about two years as I was trying to establish myself around town. But, so I'd say from about 1982 on, so about three years I was doing that. Waiter, bartender, uh, and playing on the weekends. But after that, then I established myself enough that since 1982, I've done nothing but play music in, in some form. Right. Uh, make music my life. Yeah. So, and, yeah. So over the past few years, yeah. you have also assembled a, a number of conceptual shows. Right. Like the one you're playing tonight, The Last Waltz, right. uh, The Mad Dogs and Englishmen, mm -hmm. Soulville. Strange yeah. how you get back to stacks after that I first know. band. I know. Um, tell me about that experience. I mean, did one click and thought, okay, I need to come up with different concept shows? <laughs> no, it's, it's funny. It's stranger than that. And somebody said to me the other night, they said, oh, you're the king of these shows now. And I thought, well, that's such a funny thing because I'd, I'd never set out to do this. It wasn't any kind of uh, plan of mine. And it really fell into my lap because the Kitchener Blues Festival asked me to do uh, Claude Cloutier mm -hmm. and asked me to do a fundraiser. They were doing a fundraiser for the Kitchener Blues Festival. And he said, is there anything special you could do that would involve as many people as possible? And the first time he asked me that, I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to do Ray Charles, so why don't we do the music of Ray Charles? why don't we just get a bunch of people to sing different Ray Charles songs and we'll, we'll put on a show and that'll be a good fundraiser. It was very successful. So he asked me the next year, he said, well, do you have anything else you'd want to do? That was so great and raised so much money for us. And I said, well, geez, I can't think of it. He said, you know, and again, if you could employ as many people as possible. And I thought, well, the only thing I could think of offhand was the last waltz, the band, because you get to have five-piece band you get to have a horn section and then you get to have guests so I think the first time we did it yeah it was at, at, a, at a club for them and it, and it worked so well like the audience loved it but more importantly when we played that music we had this sort of reaction to it like we'd 
we'd all grown up with it. Mm -hmm. I'd always loved the band, but, and I played the music all my life, but as soon as we played a game with the proper ensemble, with the horns and organ and piano, um, and we actually ended up with this great drummer uh, that really knew that style. Uh, it was, it was, it felt so great. And we just thought, wow, well, we shouldn't just do this once. So then, then uh, it was so good that Claude hired us to do the Kitchen Blues Festival. And everything else has come out of that. Everything else is just because Claude every year says, it, it, can we do anything else? But it can't be easy when you have a huge band like that yeah. involving so many different personalities who have, who all have their own schedules. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. I, don't, I don't know how many make this a priority or how many people you have to move in and out. But, I mean, it's a pretty consistent band, right? Well, and, yeah, but the way I've set up all those shows is that I try to keep the core band consistent right. and then all the guests, or when we say do the Mad Dog show, the Joe Cocker uh, thing, we, I've always uh, structured it so that there'll be three or four singers right. that, that can sing that style. And I don't ask anybody to copy Joe Cocker. I don't want anybody doing Joe Cocker. I just want them to sing in that style. In other words, as a, as a soul bluesy singer. And I'll have a, a female singing Joe Cocker songs. It doesn't matter. Um, and so I end up with this kind of stable of people who can do it. Because they are all-star shows. I only work with some of the best people in the country. Mm -hmm. And so they're off doing their own shows. I mean, Chuck Jackson is singing with Downchild. Right. So he can't always do it. Uh, but see, it was never, it was all done as one-offs for the Kitchen and Booth Festival. And my agreement with the Kitchen and Booth Festival was that if I put the work in, because they couldn't really pay me to do two hours worth of charts right. for this. And I would write all the charts for the band, like the rhythm charts, and then I'd write all the horn charts. So they couldn't possibly pay me for that. It would be a $10,000 job just for the charts. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, well, I'll do it on basically spec. In other words, I'll write these charts. You'll pay me for your gig, but I get to do it after your gig. I get to do it anywhere else so that eventually it will pay off for the work I invested. And this is an important thing that an early mentor of mine told me and it, a couple of other composers told me during the time they said you know Lance the trick to this business and making a living in this business is always to get people to pay for the work that you would have done on your own anyways right. so if you've always wanted to learn Joe Cocker songs or learn what Leon Russell played on the piano yes you could go on your own time and learn it and and woodshed and and People like me, that's our idea of a good Friday night, is just to sit down and learn things like that. But the people who have the bug. But better, if you want to make a living at this, is find somehow somebody to pay you to do that. Right. So that's what it's sort of been for me. Uh, it's it's not something that I set out to do. It, in the end, though, what's happened... Uh, burden isn't the right word, but I'm... A, I employ, in a lot of these shows, up to 14, 15 people. Which is a lot of people who so, you have to pay. Yeah, it's a lot of people that I'm paying. And it has worked out. Nobody thought it was possible. Everybody said, well, th these sound great, <laughs> but you can't possibly make money doing this. And you've also gone on the road, right? Like you've yeah, traveled a little we've bit. we've traveled with it. We've done, and we're making money doing it. 
they're getting paid better than any gig they'd ever have in town. Uh, and I'm making money on it. So not always. I've lost money too. <laughs> but in, I've made more money than I've lost. Right. Um, it's at this point now, it's, uh, I feel almost like those big band guys. You, you have, or B.B. King's band. He had a, uh, uh, he had a responsibility to keep those guys working. Mm -hmm. Like now it's working. People love the shows. It'd be in a way sort of selfish for me to go, oh, well, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, everybody's out of work, you know, and, and they're saying, well, why? The, the audience loves it. You, you know, we love it. Why would you? But there's a part of me that, that actually, I've done it enough and, and I, I just assume not, uh, uh, organize these things. Right. Can, can I love playing them. I just don't want to organize. Yeah, I'm sure it's not easy. No. C give me a sense of like the last waltz you're playing. Yeah. You played last night. You're playing tonight. Yeah. You're playing, I think tomorrow night as well. And tomorrow night, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how many shows? How many? How many shows have you done, or how many performances have you done with that show? So I don't know how many shows we've done in total because we started in 2010, so seven years ago. But in general, we were only playing what you'd call the shoulder seasons, like November and March, because that's the summertime. Everybody's busy with right, all okay. their own things. So this is sort of when uh, it slows down for musicians. And uh, January slows down too, but nobody goes out to clubs. There's no point in right. booking things in January. So, uh, so these would be two months that we could sort of, I could get enough people, enough of the core people together to, to do it. So that was sort of the idea... Um, it'd be a very part-time thing that we would just do. Uh, the last waltz in particular is sort of taken off into a level where now we're getting asked by festivals all summer to do it. Right. We did, and somebody told me, I haven't really added up, but they said we did 35 shows this year. Wow. That's a lot more than I would have said. I would have said maybe <laughs> we did 15. Uh, but, and that might be counting, you know, like we did three shows at Peter's Players. Right. They'd count each one of those. So it's not like we've even played 35 different places. But So it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange situation. And it's even gotten to the point when we were touring with Last Waltz out West, somebody had bought a, uh, some theater, had wanted to do the uh, Hitsville show, the Motown show that I'd put together again for the Kitchener Booth Festival and they ended up doing it without me because I again I, I felt well here's 13 people that could have a job that night mm. I've got a job I'm playing in Calgary uh, there's no real reason I don't have to be there so I just got somebody to be a musical director in my place a uh, really good uh, musical director and uh, Steve Hunter in fact and they went and did it in the Gravenhurst Opera House without me. And and I did, I I mean, if I really wanted to make this uh, as, as what I do, I could have, you know, four of those shows on the road, all right. of them paying back to me, me not even working. And, but it's not what I want to do. It's what you have to decide sometimes what you actually want to do. And uh, so sometimes when things fall in your lap, uh, you know, because the nature of the business, I've, I've just been creating my own work. And what it's actually allowed me to do is work less of the uh, smaller gigs that would take up more of my time. Right. So this allows me to, to do, you know, now we're doing six or seven gigs over two weeks. 
with the last waltz. Well, I don't have to really work now for the next three weeks. Right. On gigs, I can actually finish the, the <laughs> this record I've been trying to finish for 10 years. Uh, <laughs> so it's, you know, because I have a record in the can that has Garth Hudson on it, has Richie Hayward from Little Feet on it, it has Dominic Trano on it. Dominic Trano and Garth Hudson playing together uh, has all sorts of exciting stuff. And I haven't been able to finish it because usually I'm working on somebody else's project or trying to get 15 people into a theater somewhere. Right. So uh, so that's why, uh, uh, you know, it's that old thing. You should be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. <laughs> Um, but I didn't set out. There are people who have actually set out to do this stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. And they come after me and they sort of say, how have you been successful with it? And maybe because I haven't really pursued it in a way. Uh, would you think of doing anything else? Like uh, Sergeant Peppers? No. no, I mean, would you think of doing any other projects? Or well, are you, are it's you funny you mentioned Sergeant Peppers. No, I, I've been offered other things. Claude had an idea to do a, a Rolling Stones thing, especially Exile on Main Street, which I'm not... I'm not such a big fan of not even that particular record, and uh, and I just said no. You know, it, feel free to ask somebody else to do it. That's right. one I wouldn't want to do. Um, I would. Uh, uh, there's certainly a, a lineup of people. It's a funny thing. I've always just had a, a real reverence for people that I've looked up to. If it wasn't Oscar Peterson or any of the people that really uh, influenced me as a kid. Not unlike Dr. John, if you hear the way he talks about the people that came before him, mm. there's two kinds of people in the world. There are people that really respect the people that came before them, and there's people who are trying to break away from that. You know, they're innovators, and right. part of that innovation is almost to negate what these people did in, before you. I'm the latter. I, I really have, and maybe too much reverence for the people who came before me. Um, I just... I was so affected by them and so moved by their their art, and it's 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 infused all my life so much that part of me felt I couldn't even do my own records until I did more. Like the fact that Scott Cushney was out there and people hadn't done much recording with him, I thought, how can I be putting out a piano record when Scott Cushney is sitting there and, and nobody's recorded him? It'd be like being in New Orleans and nobody had recorded uh, James Booker. Right. You know, it just seemed crazy. So I almost had to get some of these things out of my system. The 2B3 record I did with Doug Riley and Mike Von Ferrer and Dennis Kelly. I mean, these guys are just incredible artists and they, had, they haven't been represented enough mm -hmm. in the recording world of Toronto. And, and I felt, because I was asked to do that record myself. And I said, well, I can't. I can't be out there doing a, a B3 record when there's these guys <laughs> in town here. Right. So I put it together. You know, um, and I had plans of doing a two B three New York, a two B three Memphis, and so on. But again, these are plans. Like maybe I still will, but life sort of caught up to me in other ways. I did other things, but I could add a whole career just doing that, mm -hmm. just doing two organ records, and or doing. I could have been the Celtic producer. I worked with Roger Whitaker. I wrote. I I used to tour with Mister Dress Up. I did children's shows because of this dress up I did some CTV work uh, CBC work uh, on a show with Tabby Johnson called Guess What that could have been a whole career um, and not that and I enjoyed each one of them really enjoyed each one of them 
But um, I guess it's just something just keeps me going to, to go to other opportunities. And, and they just keep presenting themselves to me. Uh, well, that, I think, speaks a little bit about yourself, that these well, things well, come Well, hopefully now. You know, the, the great thing about where I am now, I'm 64. Um, I'm not, I don't look for work. It, it finds me. You know, and uh, and I don't sit by the phone waiting for somebody to call me anymore. I just create my own work whenever I want. If I want to do something, I, I'll book a theater and I'll put something in there. If I we would go back to that young kid who went to London to study composition, yeah. mm-hmm. or the or the musician who started playing jazz in Toronto. Yeah. Um, at that point, if I said, "Well, what would you like to do? What would that have been?" And w- were you able to accomplish that? Well, there are things I've never written sort of a, a full orchestral score for a big film or what I would consider important, meaningful film. I, I feel that is something I would have said at that time I wanted to do. If, if, I, ha- if I was going to do that, I would have had to move to L.A., and I wasn't, I'd always started a family at that point, and I wasn't really willing to take a young family down to L.A. and do that. So you could say that maybe, uh, maybe because I was raised as sort of middle-class person, I was raised in a suburb of Ottawa or at the west end of Ottawa, uh, I didn't have the drive to, to uproot a family like that or uproot myself. I wanted a certain level. I don't know why. But I just didn't have that drive, and I don't know if it's a regret, but it's it's something I've wondered about. If if I had actually done it at a time I could have done it, uh, maybe my whole life would be different. I'd be just doing film scores and 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 having a great time. Um, or not. Or not. Or I wouldn't have everything else. I, I I'm quite. I must admit, in the end, I've been really fortunate with the with the people I've worked with. Uh, you know, producing records for Fathead and knowing John Mays, playing with John, um, uh, playing with Shakura, Saida for years, you know, and playing on her records. Uh, I was just talking to Jesse O'Brien. We're talking about doing some two piano things together. I mean, it's the people and, and the level of artistry that I get an opportunity to play with that really now is satisfying. So maybe I, if I'd gone in another direction, I wouldn't have had that. I, I'm really quite content with my life. And the fact that my dad, as I started off saying, he was an athlete. He didn't, he didn't know anything about the music business. And he was kind of worried that because he couldn't help me, he didn't know anything about it, that I was just going off in this wilderness all on my own, which of course I was. <laughs> And I didn't have a clue about anything. Um, and he would ask me every now and then. He'd say, you know, are you happy? Are, are, you, are you content? Is this what you think you should have done? He would always be concerned with, because he knew it was such a struggle, especially early on. It's such a struggle. And I remember when I finally got the, to meet Oscar Peterson, and I ended up working with him on his multimedia CD-ROM. So I worked for about five years, and I'd meet Oscar almost every week. And we became friends in a funny kind of way uh, uh, in that we were sort of kindred spirits even though he played at such a higher level than me 
he recognized that we were both sort of the same. We had the same sense of humor. He had the same band talk. He had the same band problems I had, except he was paying people $2,500 a night who were complaining about the pay, and I was paying people $150 a night who were complaining about the pay. It was the same. Right. It didn't matter how much you paid. If people were going to complain about it, it didn't matter. Um, but I remember telling my dad, I thought, the greatest thing about my education and my journey through music is that when I got to be with Oscar and hear and be in the presence of genius and hear him play just to me or on his piano, um, that all that that I had learned brought me to a place that I could appreciate it more than most people because I really knew what it took to get to that level. And there's times now, because I, I have a two-man theatrical show, right, that I do mm-hmm. called uh, Oscar Peterson, The Jazz Legend and the Man I Knew. And I talk about, in this show, evolved into this thing. I didn't even know why I was writing it, but it evolved in this thing that how does somebody with, I'm not saying I'm not gifted, but I'm not, I know where I stand as a piano player. I'm more gifted as a writer, really. I, I, I can see that there's, I have a real gift for that. But as a piano player, I've just worked hard. I've just really worked hard. The level that Oscar was at was a level that I would never attain. You know, he was just so far. He had these gifts that, you know, and sometimes when I'm doing this show, people come up at me and say, oh, geez, you're, great. you're as good as Oscar Peterson. And of course, I have to, I have to think... You, you take anybody's compliment, you say it's very nice of you to say that, but it's really not true. Right. And I know more than you do how far I'm away from that because I'm there, I'm doing it, and I know exactly. But yes, on some sort of little level, you saw me playing fast and I sort of played some of Oscar's stuff, uh, but it's, it's so far away. But that's what all this stuff does. It increases your 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 experiences of life like because now my experience is so much more intense when i hear something done so well uh like oscar or like when we recorded oscar with love the the three cd set we did of all these great jazz pianists playing on oscar's piano in his basement you know chick korea and ramsey lewis for me to go in there and sit every day at the be at the privileged position of hearing these incredible artists play and to be able to talk to them about it and they would ask me, well, Lance, what do you think? How did that go? And I think, you know, I had to pinch myself sometimes. Um, it's only because I've got, I've had this whole history behind me. So I guess what I'm saying for any artist, you're never, it's never a waste. You know, even if you're doing all this woodshedding and you're working and you don't seem to be going anywhere, that's all just being put in the bank. Mm-hmm. If for no other reason that you'll appreciate genius when you hear it. And uh, I consider myself a little like Salieri and Amadeus, Amadeus that I, I'm just talented enough to know true genius when I, when I see it and hear it. And I really, uh, uh, I don't think it's a curse. I think it's, uh, it's made my life so much richer. 
And for instance, when I was just talking to Jesse O'Brien, to me, Jesse O'Brien is the, is the best piano player I've heard in 30 years. Wow. He is just that much better than everybody else. And uh, it's in his feel, it's in his ideas. It's not until you sort of play with him. I played with him in, in a Ray Charles show we did. I played organ, he played piano. I know that every time he plays, he's coming up with new stuff. People in the audience don't know that. And that whatever we did in rehearsal, in the sound check, when we ran the tune, what he's now doing is completely different, completely amazing. Hmm. Way beyond anybody else, even in the, in the ensemble. Uh, so you get this inner look at, wow, now I'm, like, it's just even that much more amazing. Not unlike working with Garth Hudson, who could do that sort of thing. Right. Could just come up with something it's just incredible and you wouldn't know that or I, this kid on uh, on the Oscar with Love CD Gerald Clayton unbelievable he would do three takes of a piece and it would be completely different each take but all good all brilliant absolutely brilliant or you might say uh, maybe this tune I'll try it in the minor you could just play this whole piece in the minor. And you go, that's not even humanly possible. And he would just do it. And I'd say, but people don't realize that about it because only the final thing is on the record. They didn't hear the three wonderful takes that are completely different. And the one in the minor, just thrown in there for fun. And I'd go, so yes, what he did, his, his version of Him the Freedom on the Oscar with Love CD is one for the ages. It just absolutely is as good as it could be done. You know, it's, it's like an Oscar performance. Wow. And yet he had two others that I had to struggle over. Which one do I eventually let the audience hear? Because there's parts of this one that are just astounding. And if I, if I had you, I'd play, I'd play this for you. And then, but I'd say, oh, yeah, but you also have to hear this. Like it was, that's usually my, my, my gauge. If, if somebody comes over, what do I want to play them? I have to ask myself, you know, of these three takes, which one am I, am I so excited about? They just have to hear. Well, with virtually everybody else, there would be one that I'd say, this is just spectacular. Him, it was, it was painful because I knew that two of those takes would not be heard by the public. Wow. You should release them as bonus tracks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we should. I mean, there's, they've just been... It's uh, Mac Avenue has just released that whole CD. Actually, I think it was November fifteenth, all over the world. So it's it's getting more exposure now with their kind of distribution. So that's a whole exciting thing that's happening. There's a lot going on, Lance. I I know you're a busy man. You're going to a gig now. I I really want to thank you for yeah. taking this time. And well, uh, let me ask you one final question. Yeah, yeah. I'll try so to be music succinct. in general. Yeah. What does it mean to you? Um, uh, it's, it's, it was said by Billy Preston, uh, music is my life, you know. So when I've thought at times when I've been discouraged, especially when I was younger, discouraged, I thought of leaving and doing something else, I would sit back and say, but what could I do? Not that, what, that I couldn't do other things, but I knew if I went off and did something, like, oh, I opened up a restaurant or became a restaurateur or something, our club owner, but that I'd always be playing the piano. I, I couldn't turn that off. Mm -hmm. So in the end, and 
And my kids have even said to me that I was pretty blessed that this came early on. I didn't really have to search this down. That from about 16 on, I pretty much knew this is this was just a part of me. And maybe right back to dun da dun 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 that this was going to be a part of me. Um, so I've been blessed with that, that I've never, other than sort of in darkest hours, never really doubted that this is what I should be doing. Whether I'm successful at it or not, really never really entered into the equation, other than when it got down to if I was failing to pay the rent. But uh, So now at this stage of my life, when I start thinking of retiring, or when people around me are retiring, I'm just saying, I'm just starting to get the hang of this. I couldn't imagine, it just wouldn't work. Where, where, where would I go? What would I do? Mm. I mean, what, I'd go sit on a beach in Florida and, uh, or in, in uh, Panama? Um, it, uh, no, I, I just, that is it. Uh, for whatever reason, I say I got the bug, you know, I got bit and I got, I got the bug, so I, I, I've never regretted it, and it just is. It's like, this is who I am. Whatever job I might do, if I became a gardener, whatever I thought I could do, I knew that I never would have left. I would be a gar I'd be a musician who was doing work as a gardener. I'd never become a gardener. Right. This is just who I am. So that's what music means to me. It just is. It's it's eternally interesting. I never. At, at, I've never bored with it. I'm never at, at a point where I go, I got it or I understand it. It's just every single corner I turn around. And in fact, this is maybe the disappointing thing for a lot of, I'm going to let the young players in on this, is it gets bigger. Yeah. <laughs> what you know, the more you investigate, it, it just keeps on expanding. You think, no, I would, I would know more and more, so it gets to less, there's less to know. Unfortunately, it's the opposite. The more you know, the bigger it gets. And it, I think the universe is a bit like that. The more you know about it, the bigger it gets. So it's the same idea. And so this idea that you might somehow come to a point in your life that you actually know it. And I think this is true in the blues as well. Um, if I could just say something about the blues in particular, I started playing the blues, I was playing jazz, and I heard an interview with Oscar Peterson well before I knew him personally, 20 years before I knew him. And Oscar said something. He said, you have no business playing jazz if you can't play the blues. And I took it to heart and I thought, you know, I've never really investigated blues well. I, I could play a blues, but not really investigated it. So I did, and I'm still doing it. Mm -hmm. And it sort of opened up that kind of world that the more I looked at it, the bigger it got. And the, and the, I'm still, I haven't gone back to jazz because I'm still at the point where I'm trying to play blues so that I could say I play blues. So it's that kind of thing, you know. I told Oscar this once and he laughed. He said, what, you mean you changed your whole life because I said this stupid thing in an interview? I said, yeah, well, that's, that's it, you know. And I'm still trying to get the hang of it. I'm still trying to get the hang of blues. But the people who don't understand the complexity of blues, who say it's easy because the form seems to be easy, the 
it's easy because the choice of notes, you don't have a lot of scales, you might be using the blues scale and the pentatonic scale, that is now easy because of that, don't, are not aware of the incredible subtlety that is involved in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'd be like saying, well, Michelangelo, you just got you know, a hammer and a chisel. How hard can it be to make the, the statue of David? Right. It's just missing the point. They don't get it. And, and that's what I've come to appreciate. The artistry in the blues is in these very subtle uh, articulations. And, and if you go back to my, my classical, where everything's very complex, you know, background, to me, even The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky is simple compared to most blues play. Mm-hmm. So, and, and in the end, complexity is easy. Throw a lot of notes down on the page, it's, it's complex. Simplicity is hard. Making something simple, completely your own, and that expresses this feeling that you have, and that completely matches what you're talking about. And coming to the point that you're one with that, that's it, that's hard. Everything else is simple, you know. (laughs) Thank you, thank you for sharing this, thank you for your time, and thank you for sharing your pursuit of music with us. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. It still goes, it still goes. (laughs) And you will play tonight? Yep. Thank you very much. Yeah.